Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, here we are again, talking about systemic racism in American social institutions, the root of why Black African Americans are so angry. You'll recall in our first episode, we talked about all the social institutions that have become steeped in systemic racism. So I I want you to just remind us what some of those social institutions are. Well, you have education, finance, the judicial system, housing, I think housing, I think we might be going a little bit towards that today, if I'm not mistaken. You are not mistaken. So before we go into what we see as systemic racism in housing, we're just going to remind you that uh, systemic racism is any prejudice against someone because of their race. When those views are reinforced by systems of power, power is the operative word, remember that? And systems of power are patterns, procedures, practices, and policies that operate within social institutions, those those institutions you were just describing, Court. And um, when those power practices are going on, they penalize and disadvantage and exploit individuals who, who are members of the non-white or social, uh, racial ethnic groups. These are not the power brokers. The power brokers are the ones who, who can uh, exact systemic racism. Now, don't get me wrong. We need social institutions. We just don't need the systemic racism that goes along with them. So, We mentioned earlier that we're going to be talking about systemic racism in housing. So can you tell us a little bit more about how that goes on? Just, you know, what what are we talking about when there's systemic racism in housing? Well, I think a lot of us know if we live in either urban or rural areas of the bad part of town. Now, the bad part of town didn't actually just decide to be the bad part of town. There are some powers at B that actually created that. Right. As well as well as a lot of the freeways, highways, and byways, as my grandparents used to call them, to get into smaller cities, a lot of us don't know that those used to be neighborhoods, especially African-American neighborhoods. But by using systemic racism in housing and real estate, we've created things like ghettos, slums, and the ideas that people feel about how Black African Americans live are actually embedded by the systematic racism in real estate. 
You're, you are right. You've hit the nail on the head, my dear. Unfortunately, Black African Americans have been victimized for years when it comes to housing. Home ownership is considered the gateway to building what's called generational wealth in America. Because when you build equity in a home, you can use it to buy a better home. You can pay for college tuition. And in general, you can just, you know, move up the economic ladder. But sadly to say, in a, a 2016 study that I saw recently, it was done by Moritz, Kuhn, and Steins, um, those researchers found that the typical middle-class Black household had $13,024 in wealth versus $149,703 for the median white household. And most of that disparity is because of the disparity in home ownership. Meanwhile, According to the National Association of Realtors, a little over 13% of black homeowners or home shoppers were rejected for a mortgage loan last year, in contrast to only 4% of Latino buyers and 5% of white shoppers. So that real estate uh, whole business, it's, it's not a level playing field by any stretch of the imagination. Wow. And I know growing up, I was a suburban kid and I didn't even really take into, uh, I actually took it for granted being a suburban kid. But after hearing those stats, my parents are were among the minority, especially in the early 80s. That disparity was created by neighborhoods being purposely segregated through federal, state, and local laws, as well as practices by banks and real estate agents, which you just let us know. African-American families were prohibited from buying homes in the suburbs and while in the 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s by the Federal Housing Administration, also known as the FHA. They gained none of the equity appreciation that their white counterpart families gained. And that's a, that's a paraphrased quote by the historian and author Richard Rothstein from his film Segregated by Design, which is based on his acclaimed book, which I'm reading right now, The Color of Law. And the things that I've learned from that book and that short movie have blown my mind. I'll tell you, that book is something else. And again, it's one of the books that very few people, well, fortunately now, Richard Wastein is on the lecture circuit again, and people are starting to hear about and read his book. Uh, but a few years ago, when it first came out, it hit the, the stands, but, you know, didn't make a big, big fuss. But right now, uh, he, he is in the spotlight and his book is too. So let's talk about some of those laws and practices that he describes in his book. And you've hit on uh, a little bit of that about in the, uh, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, and even up until the 60s, how the Federal Housing Administration operated. Um, Courtney, it's, it, it blew my mind as well when I read that the uh, federal government only gave subsidized loans to builders who agreed to segregate booming suburbs like Levittown, New York and Levittown, Pennsylvania. And also, not only did they restrict giving those loans, but they required that the deeds for those houses include what were called restrictive covenants. These were covenants that forbid selling or reselling a house to a Black African American. It's appalling to know that. And in fact, I bet if some people go back 
and look at their deeds to their houses now, they'll find those restrictive covenants in there. And it's very difficult to get them out. They're not enforced anymore, but, or for the most part that we know of, but they are in there in uh, most instances. So tell us about the banks. I think they were involved too. They were. Banks got involved by doing something called redlining. The practice of mortgage lenders drawing red lines around portions of a map to indicate areas and neighborhoods which they did not want to make loans. Redlining most often was done on a racial basis to restrict loans to Black African Americans and to determine the worth of neighborhoods based on something as simple as racial makeup. So you would see a map and colored in red would be the bad neighborhoods or the black neighborhoods. Yes, redlining was a tough one. And then add insult to injury. But back in the day, the real estate, real estate brokers got involved. They practiced something called block busting. This is the practice of, of um, getting white homeowners to sell their property very cheaply because of the fear of people particularly black people, possibly moving into the neighborhood. Then these realtors would turn around and they would sell those properties that they bought for next to nothing to black people at a higher price. And basically what happened is that black block busting resulted in what became known as white flight. That's when white people sold their houses at a loss, moved to the suburbs because they thought that their uh, neighborhoods were down the drain because black people were coming. Another tactic realtors use was called steering. It's the illegal practice of nudging buyers away or toward a specific area based on race. So realtors would uh, recommend to black people, you need to go live over here because it's a better neighborhood. Well, it would turn out the better neighborhood was better for them because it was almost all black and so forth and so on. So Courtney, now that we know some of the laws and some of the practices that were done back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even the early 60s, can you tell me and tell all of our listeners how this actually worked at a, at a personal level? The story, I know you're a history buff, so tell us what may have happened to someone that we haven't heard of from history. Well, I have someone I would love to share with both you and our listeners about. It's the tragic story of Dr. Sweet, and it's actually not a sweet story at all. American scholar Victoria W. Wilcott is quoted as saying, to know the story of Dr. Osain Sweet is to know the history of segregation in America. I know about segregation, but I didn't know about Dr. Sweet until now, and I'm going to share his story with you. Dr. Osain Sweet was born in 1895 in Bartow, Florida. One of his earliest memories was witnessing the lynching and subsequent burning alive of a local Black man at the hands of a white mob. Wow. Yeah, that was something that he was even quoted as saying into his adulthood would haunt him. The sight and the smell of that moment haunted him well into his adulthood. At the age of 13, his family decided to send him to Wilberforce University, which is one of the first Black universities in Ohio and America. After leaving Wilberforce, he attended the illustrious Howard University in Washington, D.C. And while he was a student there, he was a witness to the race riots of 1912, also known as Red Summer. Mm 
So racism has followed him from childhood all the way up to his collegiate years. Mm, wow. Well, that's all, all I can say is, wow, Dr. Sweet had it. Tough from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, once he graduated from Howard University, he decided to go to Detroit, Michigan. He wanted to be a, a doctor for the colored or black population in what was called the Black Bottom neighborhood. Now, from what we've learned about real estate so far, you can only imagine how that neighborhood was unfairly segregated. But Dr. Sweet had a heart for his people and wanted to give them adequate medical care. Now, in 1922, he met his wife, Gladys Mitchell, and in 1923, they were married. Now, just like a romantic movie, he whisked her away to Europe. They lived in Vienna and Paris, while Dr. Sweet studied under and studied with illustrious scientists such as Marie Curie. And all the books and articles I've read about Dr. Sweet let me know in no uncertain terms, while in Europe, he was treated as an equal, a fellow scientist and a fellow doctor. There were, he may have experienced racism, but not from his contemporaries and not when it came from housing. Now, when Gladys let uh, her husband know, when she let Osway know that she was pregnant, they decided to move back to America. They decided to move back to Michigan. But this time, Dr. Sweet had a plan. He wanted his child to be born in, a, born in America and live in a better neighborhood. Now, I want to point out that Michigan, of course, is a northern state. And Detroit is, from what most people know, a mainly African-American city. So I know a lot of people are going to think, well, Jim Crow wasn't in the North. That's only in the South. You're right. But there was something just as sinister going on in the North. Several white neighborhoods formed associations um, or improvement societies with only one purpose, and that was to keep Black people out. Hmm. It was a, yeah, it, that was their only goal. They didn't care about your hedges, what kind of trash cans you used, none of that. Their express goal was to make sure African-Americans stayed out of their neighborhood. It was a practice that was held by the state government all the way until 1948. Another sinister character that creeped up from the South to the North was the Ku Klux Klan. In Detroit, Michigan, that same year that Dr. Sweet moved back, a Klansman lost the mayoral election by only a few votes, but the Klan had a stranglehold in local government as well as the police department, and that will play a role in our story uh, going forward. Mm, I'm intrigued. Now, on September 8th, 1925, Dr. Sweet and his wife Gladys moved into 2905 Garland Street. It was their new home. It was their dream home but it was a nightmare for their white neighbors. They quickly met at the Water Association building to discuss what to do. So there were going to be no muffin baskets or neighborhood block parties to uh, invite their new neighbors. Uh, no welcome wagon, eh? <laughs> at all. Now, a crowd formed around the house the very first night the Sweet family moved in. Now, for safety, Dr. Sweet sent his daughter to stay with her grandmother, but he also called in some friends and family, and he also called the local police for protection because that's what the police are supposed to do, right? Protect everyone. Mm -hmm. Serve and protect. 
Dr. Sweet's brother brought three friends as well, but they came armed. They brought guns and ammo. They weren't looking for trouble, but they wanted to help their brother and friend defend his property. The first night was peaceful, but the second night things got a little bit ugly. Well, a lot ugly. The police who were actually sent there to protect the, the family turned a blind eye as the crowd began to throw rocks and hurl insults at the family. The windows of their dream home began to get broken. Well, the men on the inside had had enough. A shot rang out from inside the sweet home and a white man was killed. Now, almost instantly, all 11 adults inside the sweet home were arrested. They were defending their own home, but mm. they were the ones arrested. Now, they were put in quickly in front of a judge who denied them counsel and bail. Well, that doesn't sound fair. It's not fair at all. And I think there's a document possibly called either the Constitution or Bill of Rights that spells it out that it's not fair, but not for the Sweet family. Now, swift action by the NAACP garnered funds to get the Sweet family and friends an attorney by the name of Clarence Darrow. Now, famous, uh, famous Clarence Darrow. Fam famous Clarence Darrow. Scopes monkey trial Clarence Darrow. Now, this trial was like a, a TV movie of the week. There was harrowing and passionate arguments by Clarence Darrow talking about racism and segregation and equality and even a gut-wrenching testimony by Dr. Sweet himself in which he relayed the story that I told at the beginning about the man being burned and lynched. Now, the trial did end in, in a mistrial, and all arrests, all those who arrested were set free. But this story does not have a happy ending. Oh, my. I know. The Sweets never moved back to their home on Garland Street. And while in jail, Gladys Sweet contracted tuberculosis, which she passed on to her daughter, and they both died from the disease. Contemporaries of Dr. Sweet said that in his later years, he became angry and bitter and eventually took his own life in 1960, only eight years before the Fair Housing Act was signed in 1968. Now, Dr. Sweet's story is tragic, and it's not an isolated incident in our history. But I hope hearing about him will put a face on African American on what African Americans experience when trying to do something as simple as wanting to buy a nice home in a better neighborhood. That's what we're told. Work hard, pull yourself up, get a good job, and buy a home, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It it just makes sense. And Listening to that story about Dr. Sweet, it's just tragic and unconscionable that that happened to him. But you're right, Court, it wasn't the only situation. Uh, you're correct. There are many documented incidents in neighborhoods around the country. And in fact, I recall you were involved in an uncomfortable incident when your family moved into an all-white neighborhood. Isn't that right? That's right. Uh my family, both of my parents had wonderful jobs, and they followed the American dream to home ownership. I remember the house. It had a beautiful backyard. And one thing else I remembered, there were kids in the neighborhood. I didn't care what color they were. I was an only child. There were kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> 
Well, the first day out alone in my yard, I saw a little girl next door and we began to play together. I don't remember her name, but I'm sure there were dolls or a ball or something fun involved. All of a sudden, a very angry woman, which I now know was the little girl's mother, came and snatched her away and said, you don't play with that girl. We don't play with girls like that. Wow. I didn't know what a girl like that was. I know now that I'm well into my 30s that she was letting her white daughter know that she was not allowed to play with the new black girl in the neighborhood. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Dr. Sweet's story was 95 years ago, but your story was not that long ago. We see issues. We see issues with housing. We continue to see issues with housing. But that was 95 years ago. And that happened with me when I was like five or six. So I'm married. I'm an apartment dweller, but my husband and I are looking to buy our first home. This cannot still be happening. There is no way. Well, I hate to tell you something. After the break, I'm going to answer that question, dear niece, and um, see where we are in 2020. Okay. Maybe I'm looking forward to it. Maybe I'm not. But I got to learn sometime. Wait, Carol, are you going to tell me that systemic racists still exist in housing and real estate today? We're back from our break. Well, Courtney, that's exactly what I'm going to tell you. But before I do, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www whyaretheysoangry.com for more resources on the subject. And they can take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. So yes, my dear niece, America is still suffering from systemic racism in housing and real estate. Let me give you a couple statistics. In the first quarter of 2020, the Census Bureau reported that black households had the lowest home ownership rate at 44%, nearly 30 percentage points behind white households. Uh, Dina Williams wrote in a Forbes magazine article just recently, quote, in the housing boom leading to the Great Recession, predatory lending characterized by unreasonable rates, unreasonable fees and payments, they all zeroed in on minorities, pushing them into risky subprime mortgages. Even if black mortgage applicants had credit scores and debt ratios similar to those of white borrowers, they still received unfavorable mortgage terms. Oh, wow. Yeah, unfortunately. And folks tend to think that people back themselves into a corner back during that time and uh, knew that they were not in the position to buy these large houses and pay these big mortgages. But what they don't tell is the other side of the story. These were borrowers who were actually purposely given these subprime uh, mortgages and these balloon mortgages in spite of the fact they did not have to get them. So that's where we are that's where we are. So let me make it a little more personal. Let me get out of the statistics for now, okay? 
And just this month, there were two reports of situations of systemic racism in housing. For example, the New York Times reported about an Ortega, Florida couple whose home appraisal came in more than $100,000 below expectations. So the couple, Abina and Alex Horton, tried a little experiment before they got a second appraisal. They took down all the family pictures with Black relatives and pictures of African-American artwork. They did what they called whitewashing their home. Her husband, who is white, was the only person at home when the appraiser, and this was the same appraiser who gave the, the first appraisal, when, he, when that appraiser came. Get this, Courtney. The second appraisal jumped by 40%, going from the initial $330,000 to $465,000. And the couple felt that they were victims of implicit bias during that first appraisal. Now, that sounds personal. It does. <laughs> Just like the story with Dr. Sweet, who I saw his picture, he looked like a harmless man. I've seen a picture of this couple. They look like a regular first-generation millennial couple like my husband and myself. Wow, that's yeah. shocking. It is. Well, let me shock you again. Also this month, CNN reported about Danielle Morgan, a Black assistant professor at Santa Clara University, who was at home one day and opened her door to a knock. There outside stood her brother, Carlos Fuentes, and there was a campus police officer who had followed him back to her home. He had been staying with her. Her brother said the campus police officer demanded she come out and vouch for him. The campus police officer at that point asked her to show ID. And she asked him, well, why do I need to show ID? I'm, I'm in my own home. And the officer said, well, it's, it's not your home. The university owns it. Danielle and her brother basically got the double whammy. Carlos was profiled as a dangerous black man, and the officer assumed Danielle had no right to live where she did and had to prove it was okay to be there. I just, I shake my head when I see these stories, but there's more. There's a Newsday report that was done, an extensive three-year undercover investigation that was published in late 2019. And this report was titled Long Island Divided. It revealed that 49% of the times realtors showed homes on Long Island, New York to prospective black buyers by illegally steering them to mixed race neighborhoods considered less desirable. And they were not or rarely shown homes in predominantly white neighborhoods. Now the reverse was true for prospective white buyers. They weren't steered to the mixed neighborhoods, but they were steered to the white neighborhoods. And this is illegal. Since the Fair Housing Act was passed, that is illegal. And you can imagine some of these realtors refused to appear on camera after the undercover investigation to explain themselves. Wow, this is like modern blockbusting. I remember reading in uh, Richard Rothstein's book and seeing his film where they would have Black mothers push babies um, in their carriages through white neighborhoods to discourage buyers and even do fake phone calls. Mm -hmm. Well, we have caller ID now, so no one's going to answer a number they don't know. <laughs> but reading, well, hearing what you're telling me and reading what I'm reading now, maybe I should stay in an apartment. Well, I wouldn't encourage that because like I said earlier, uh, Courtney, home ownership is the key to generational wealth. 
and white people have experienced that and have had that experience since the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. And that's why there is a big wealth gap. Uh, even though there is still discrimination and segregation in housing, and it's uh, today, it's not ancient history, I still encourage you and other young people to do whatever you can to own a home because getting that equity sets you up for for success financially. Well, I'm not going to be discouraged. We're going to keep moving forward to build generational wealth and close that wealth gap for future generations of squares and their family. That's correct. That's correct. Well, you know, We've talked a lot today, Courtney. Um, I bet you there are some other places where folks out there that are listening to us can get some information about the work we're doing. That is absolutely right. We're on Instagram. You can find us at Why Are They So Angry on Instagram, all spelled out. You can also find us on Twitter at at W-A-T-S-A underscore online. That's W-A- T-S-A underscore online on Twitter. And I would be remiss in saying a rest in peace to Chadwick Boseman. A lot of the books we're going to cover and a lot of history that we do know, he has played those roles on film. He's played Thurgood Marshall, the godfather of soul, James Brown, as well as number 42, Jackie Robinson, where we just celebrated Jackie Robinson Day on August the 28th. And if you know anything about Jackie Robinson, he integrated uh, baseball. And as a comic book nerd myself, he brought to life the first Black superhero for Marvel Comics, which was Black Panther. Also, we both would like to shine a light on what's going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin. If you're watching the news, you'll understand that systemic racism is at work yet again in the institution of law enforcement with Jacob Blake being shot in the back by a police officer seven times and is now paralyzed. Right now, people are working towards being peaceful and protesting as well as protesting in Kentucky, wanting the arrest of the police officers that uh, killed Breonna Taylor. So we did not want to leave those two events, those three events out uh, because that is steeped in what we are talking about. You're exactly right, Court, and thanks for reminding us of those three very important pieces of of current events that are actually um, results of past historic situations. So next time we chat, Oh, and don't forget, we're also, we have our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com. So check us out there as well. But the next time we chat, dear niece, we'll delve into systemic racism in an area that is near and dear to my heart, education. So um, I hope everybody will join us in, especially those, if everybody's been in school, which most of us have, this is a topic you're probably going to want to hear about. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.